This is an ABC podcast. Today, regional cancer patients forced to drive for hours to Canberra for treatment are calling on government to build an oncology centre in the regions. The cancer centre in Canberra is clearly overloaded and it was just non-stop, you know, people piling in almost like a cattle market. So I think my treatment was unavoidably delayed because of the unavailability. And we find out how a kindy programme is starting to reawaken an Indigenous language that was disappearing. This is our what? Our nose. This is a fun one. This word is kapung. And it's a bit like a sneeze. Can you say it? Kapung. 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 I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. More rain and storms are expected over the weekend as a cold front sweeps across Australia's southeast. Major flooding is already a problem on many inland rivers and the recent rain is adding to what's known as an already kind of brimming situation. The Bureau of Meteorology has issued flood warnings for large swathes of New South Wales, Victoria and southeast Queensland. And the wild weather threatens the Bathurst 1000 supercar race that's due to wrap up on Sunday, just as the weather is expected to clear. Our reporter in Dubbo, Kira Proust, has just been out and about and she joins me now. There's a lot going on in that patch right now, Kira. but let's start with the threat of flooding. How prepared is the SES for the impending wild weather? Yes, so the SES says it's prepped to assist with evacuations and resupply operations right across western New South Wales. Uh, the issue of most concern this weekend is actually the likelihood of many inland dams spilling. So Water New South Wales told us this afternoon that the dams of most concern this weekend are Burundong Dam into the Macquarie River, Burrunjuk on the Murrumbidgee, Copeton Dam on the Gwaida, Keepit Dam on the Lower Namoi near Gunnada and the Wyangla Dam on the Lachlan. So all five of these dams could overflow and spill into river catchments downstream, which is obviously of concern because the rivers are already experiencing minor to major flooding in parts and the ground is absolutely saturated. I flew in to Dubbo and it just saw how saturated this whole patch was from the sky and it was just you know, lots of water all across the, or the, you know, the paddocks and everything. But even the airport itself, you felt like that was nearly flooded. So the severity of the spills from the dams uh, um, into inland rivers will actually depend on how much rain falls into the catchment, of course, over the weekend. And the bomb is warning that parts of inland New South Wales could actually see the most widespread and significant flooding so far this year from today into the weekend. So that's really significant. Another system is expected to move across tomorrow as well, which could bring another 45 millimetres. But there could also be those severe isolated thunderstorms. And that would, of course, result in heavier falls in some areas. So it's wet now. It's been wet for a while. And and yeah, more rain to come. Like you said, it's been absolutely relentless in, in that part of the world. How are people managing this? What's a very early start to a season. We, we do know that there's an El Nina this summer, but this is this has come very quickly. How are people managing? 
Yeah, so helicopters have been dropping supplies to, to people who are isolated, you know, for, for weeks now. We've heard there's been people on properties, on rural properties, who've been isolated because of the flooding for four weeks. So that's a really long time already to, to be isolated. And we've seen, you know, livestock die across the region and, and there are more concerns for livestock this weekend. And some of the property owners, you know, are trying to move their livestock to higher ground, but it's, in some areas it's just not possible possible because there's no higher ground to go to. Um, people, of course, have been trying to sandbag where they can and the SES is helping out where they can. Um, but yeah, as you said, you know, the main issue is that these regions have experienced so much rain over such a long period of time. So it is really tough, but many of the, the locals are soldiering on. We did hear from the SES that they've received more than 360 requests for assistance during the past 24 hours and four of them were for flood rescues. So as always, I suppose the message to not enter flood water in any capacity is really important for people to adhere to right across the state, but particularly in these areas that, that are of concern this weekend. Now, a big event was scheduled, it was currently on, the Bathurst 1000. It's already underway and there was thousands expected to camp as they usually would. What's happening there? How's the event going? Yeah, so tens of thousands of people have already travelled across the state to attend the Bathurst 1000 and, and thousands more are expected to still travel to the region for the event. And authorities have said that they are worried about the safety of race goers due to this wet and wild weather. And, and yeah, as you said, lots of them camping and that's just really not ideal in this weather. Uh, given that there are, you know, that many people coming in these kind of conditions, there are more than 300 police stationed there to help as well as SES crews prepped across the region too. But, um, you know, the, the advice is in terms of the race, uh, the worst of the rain is predicted through tomorrow and into the early hours of Sunday. Uh, so maybe if everything's in, in working order after that deluge, the race should be good to go. But um, mm. yeah, because of those ongoing wet weather and flood warnings, it is probably safest for most people to stay dry and actually watch it on TV yeah, if possible. Sounds like yeah. it. <laughs> Absolutely. Stay in your living room and watch it from there if you can. And it probably cause less chaos if people aren't kind of descending on the area. It's been all hands on deck for the ABC as well because Kira Proust has flown into Dubbo to help out our colleagues there. Thanks very much, Kira. Thank you. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Cancer patients across the far south coast of New South Wales are having to drive for hours to seek radiation treatment. Most have to travel as far as Canberra to access these services, but are faced with roadblocks such as distance from their families and delays in treatment. Locals are calling for an oncology centre to be built in their region to fix the problem. Fatima Alumi has this story. When Peter Cormick was diagnosed with prostate cancer two years ago, he was ready to fight it. But what he wasn't ready for was the nearly six-hour round trip on a dangerous road to receive treatment. The so-called King's Highway is really just a, a bitumenised goat track, really, in many places. It's, it's hopeless. I mean, I'm, I'm relatively young and in reasonably good condition, all things considered, but there will be fragile or frail people, older people, who wouldn't be able to do what I did. It's a real imposition on one's life. The 73-year-old lives in the Dewar River Valley on the New South Wales south coast. For cancer patients in the region, the only places they can receive radiation are at Nowra or in Canberra, 
with some people travelling up to seven hours in total while at the lowest point of their health and energy. This medication that I'm on, it certainly creates a lot of fatigue, so you've got to be careful about that. Just generally in my life, oh yeah, my fatigue, my stamina has been taken right away. It has a big effect. For Mr Cormick, the distance also meant he was forced to delay his treatment for six months as he couldn't afford the eight weeks of accommodation in Canberra, the time it would take to attend his 39 rounds of radiation. The cancer centre in Canberra is clearly overloaded and it was just non-stop, you know, people piling in almost like a cattle market. So I think my treatment was unavoidably delayed because of the unavailability. The travel also put an enormous strain on his personal life, with many weeks spent apart from his wife Anne. You know, the the impact on, on the household, on her, us being apart, you know, having support, looking after one another and all of that, it's not possible when you're separated. Despite the long wait for treatment and the challenging circumstances, he considers himself one of the lucky ones, as he qualified for free treatment, subsidised fuel and accommodation under a New South Wales government scheme. Now that he's finished radiation, he's standing up for others in the same position. He's one of 5,000 people to sign a petition calling for a facility at Maruya, which would cut travel time down by two to four hours for some patients. One should not have to be calling out time and time again for what is so obviously a great need to so many people. Big MP Dr Michael Holland supports the petition and says Canberra is not always an option for the weak or elderly. These people are in pain, they are often suffering nausea, they are suffering from problems with continence during their trip, with their bowel and bladder function. So you can imagine being in a car for three to four hours suffering with those things. And they are going there for a very brief period for a service that should be provided locally. During the last election, the federal Labor government promised $8 million to build the centre, while the New South Wales government claims the need is not there. Federal member for the local Gilmore electorate, Fiona Phillips. I actually couldn't believe it. They've been able to establish radiation treatment centres in a variety of regional areas, but I think to come back and say, well, no, there's no demand for that, when I see that demand every single day and there is no other option for people on the far south coast other than travelling to Canberra or travelling north to Nowra. New South Wales Regional Health Minister Bronnie Taylor says she's willing to collaborate with Fiona Phillips to come up with a solution. We'd really be pleased, as I said today to her, come and partner with the New South Wales State Government. We'd love to have some funding to look at more services in Yorubadawa. She actually mentioned to me that she has committed $8 million to providing those local radiotherapy services. Is that something you'd be willing to, to say yes to? Look, what I have to do and what I have to do is be really responsible and look at the facts and look at the data. What it's telling us at the moment is that that data isn't there to support that radiotherapy unit. Now, is that going to change into the future? I would, I would say perhaps. I mean, we've seen a massive surge of population that was coming down. The petition for the service will be submitted to Parliament next week and the Minister is obliged to give a written response within five weeks. In the meantime, cancer patients on the far south coast will just have to wait. Fata, Fatima Alumi reporting there. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. 
And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Have you ever spotted a killer whale in the wild? It's a pretty rare thing to witness. But one group of tourists on the New South Wales mid-north coast got a pleasant surprise this week. While spotting humpback whales off the Port Macquarie coast, a large pod of killer whales appeared right next to their whale-watching boat. Our reporter, Madeleine Cross, has more. It's the sound of pure happiness. Anthony Heaney and his whale-watching crew haven't seen a killer whale off Port Macquarie in 15 years. But on Monday, they got the surprise of a lifetime. This one just here. <laughs> well, we're out doing a, a whale watch and predominantly we have the, the humpbacks come through this time of the year and we'd uh, been on a couple of humpbacks and then we sort of saw a disturbance a little way away from us and we went to motor over to that and then next thing we could see this little calf had his little tail in the air and we could see the big dorsal fins of the orcas and we went, well, there, there's orcas. They came around us and swam around us for a good 30 minutes, probably longer. And they were certainly not shy of us. The little one did a little breach and, yeah, they hung around for ages. It was unreal. Everyone got an absolute treat. Mr Heaney described the sighting as extremely rare. You've got to be lucky enough to be out there at the, at the right time and uh, I've been here for eight years and I've never seen them and one of my other skippers has been here for a lot longer than that and it's been 15 years since he saw them last. So it's a very special treat to be able to find them and see them. They're just an absolutely beautiful looking creature. They're just a pretty thing, you know. They're certainly not as big as a humpback whale but they're certainly quite large and they're just an amazing thing to look at. Orcas are known to follow humpback whales along Australia's coast through their northern and southern migration, often preying on the calves. The Organisation for the Rescue and Research of Cetaceans in Australia, Vice President Jules Farrell, says a sighting as far north as the New South Wales mid-north coast region was rare. To see you know, such a large pot of orcas interacting with humpbacks up in that area is an unusual occurrence. What the orcas tend to do is they actually follow the humpbacks. They have been seen following the humpbacks up the east coast for the northern migration and they also do the same for the southern migration. And the reason that they follow them is because they're basically after a meal because orcas do have to eat and they do prey on the humpback calves. They also prey on the old or the sick adult humpbacks. Despite this, though, they're often hard to spot. They do tend to travel out wide, but why we don't see more of them, I think it's just because they're an Antarctic species and they're only really seen um, during the whale migration and not not outside of that. But, you know, why we don't see them, you know, more often is, you know, a bit of a mystery. I think you've just got to be in the right place at the right time. Port Macquarie local Jodie Lowe was on the whale watching boat and is a keen marine photographer. (laughs) There's so many there. Well, out what was thought to be a regular whale watch. The humpbacks that we were approaching were acting weird and we didn't know what was going on. I was looking through the camera, trying to work out what was going on over where we were heading and we saw this whale banging its tail. I sort of looked at it and I'm like, hang on a minute, that's not a humpback whale. And I screamed out, orca. And then all these killer whales started to approach the boat and they were 
swimming around the boat for a little bit and had a bit of a play with us. On the um, second whale watch we went out, we had all these humpback whales just circling the boat for a full hour like they were using us for protection or something like that. There was very strange activity that day. Miss Lowe had travelled across the country to see killer whales but had never spotted one in her own backyard. I've always wanted to see a killer whale off Port Macquarie because they're my favourite animal. It was epic and it's a really rare thing to see killer whales off here. I can finally say that I've seen them off Port Macquarie. A memory to be cherished for years to come. They certainly sound pretty close, Madeline Cross reporting there on the Port Macquarie coast. Heading to Victorian town of Orbos now, where timber industry workers came together this week to discuss the looming end of native timber harvesting in the state. Orbos, like many East Gippsland towns, is home to generations of timber workers. One of them is Gary Squires, a consultant to the timber industry. He helped crunch the numbers and says the end of milling will see a quarter of people in the region out of work. The community's suddenly starting to realise that the government's announcement of two years ago is real. And what triggered that was the closing of the Meccans Mill up at New Morella just a couple of weeks ago when they completely ran out of logs. Now they, they actually understand it's real. They want to have some influence on government before the next election. Brett Dennis was also at the meeting and he's a faller in the timber industry and recently started a new job after being laid off. He told Peter Somerville his family are already feeling the effects of the demise of the timber industry. We're a family of five and out of the five of us, four of us uh, have grown up being uh, fed by the timber industry uh, myself since I was a teenager. I'm 53 now. I pushed into the industry when I was 18. My oldest son was an apprentice through pelts harvesting and haulage here in Orbos. My second oldest son was employed by Vic Forests, but uh, due to the uh, current uncertainty in the industry, he's had to um, leave home and, uh, and try and find something else. And my daughter was employed by Delp. Again, just through uncertainty of of the whole industry, she took on uh, nursing and is luckily here in Orbost. But she, like my other two sons, will have to leave because the hospital is now struggling because of the downturn in the industry. So she will have to leave too because she won't be able to advance her studies here. So I'll lose all my, all my children here who, who wanted to be here. The ABC contacted the state government for comment and a spokeswoman acknowledged it was a difficult period of transition for communities like Orbust and pointed to its $200 million investment in business, worker and community support through the Victorian Forestry Plan. This is ABC Australia Wide. We're going to head to Warrnambool in Victoria now to find out about a language programme being taught to kindy kids in a bid to reawaken an Indigenous language that was starting to disappear. When Australia was colonised, there was more than 250 Indigenous languages. Now only 12 of those languages are being learned by children today. Mel Staffenson is the Indigenous Language Facilitator for the Warrnambool City Council and she teaches kindy kids the Peak Warrung language. Emily Bislin set in on a class to find out what the program is all about and a little about the reclamation of the peak Warung language as well. Everyone ready? Yeah. yeah. Wanga wearings, everyone, Cooper Mum. 
Everyone's Cooper Mum, Scout Cooper Mum. Sit on your bottom. Everyone's sitting on your bottom. New Chong Kalat, Kinder Kupang Ang. New Chong Kalat, now. Nyata. Nyat to Nyat Ling Yung Mel Stephenson, Natuk Taran Pikrong Tunnambor. Hello, my name's Mel Stephenson and I'm a proud Pikrong woman. I am the Indigenous Language Facilitator for the Warrnambool City Council, which in a nutshell means that I just deliver the Pikrong Language Program to all of the Warrnambool City Council run kindergartens. So they all get an hour of language a fortnight. How many kindergartens are there? There are 19 groups over 12 centres. So that keeps you pretty busy then. It does keep me very busy, <laughs> but I love it though. What sort of body parts do we have? Who can tell me one of our body parts? Bones. Our bones. Our arms. Our arms. Our feet. Our feet. Our legs. And our legs. That's really good. You all know them in English. What language do I share with you? Pikrong language. All right. This is our what? Nose. Our nose. This is a fun one. This word is kapung. And it's a bit like a sneeze. Can you say it? Kapung. 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 And that's how I remember. How did this whole program, this language program, start out? It started out about five or six years ago with my dad, Uncle Lockie Eccles, who was also a language facilitator. He um, started the program with the Warrnambool City Council and back then he was only doing sort of one visit, maybe two visits a term. About four years ago I started to join him and learn the tricks of the trade I suppose and then in 2020 just before the um, pandemic the council decided to extend the program. I took over from dad because it was a little bit tricky for him and I started yeah on, on a fortnightly basis. You're teaching Peak Warong language is that right? Yeah. That is, yeah. As I understand it that's reclaimed language that there's been a lot of work done to try and work out what the language was is that fair to say? It is very much. We don't like to say that it was a lost language it's always been there it's just that it's been sleeping and we're slowly reawakening it. The way that languages disappear in Australia I'm sure there's a fairly common story about how that's happened. How did it happen here? I know from my dad's perspective, he lived with and he was raised by his grandmother and his grandmother would speak the language and when he asked her about it, she would say, Kataka, stop. No, I can't tell you. You're not allowed to know your language. We're Aboriginal people. We have to now speak the white people's language. So even back then, colonisation had already made its mark. They weren't allowed to speak the language anymore. So even within the families, well, the language was lost. What's the philosophy behind bringing it back and bringing it into kindergartens in Warrnambool? <laughs> oh, it's just wonderful. I don't know if there's a philosophy as such, but I think for a really long time, our culture, our language, our traditions have all been kept secret and hidden times are changing and people are wanting to know more what better way to start with three four and five year olds they are like little sponges and they just soak up the language they are really the custodians of this language going forward moving forward i know uncle Lockie, and he speaks to students that he taught in kindergarten who are now in grade six year seven and they still remember the language that he taught them when they were at kinder so it's incredible who were the people that walked on the lands down here around Warrnambool for the first time? The, Who the can people. Pe 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 people.
That's right. And when we do our acknowledgement to country, we're making a what? A promise to the people wrong people. We are making a promise to the people wrong people. And we're making a promise to promise three things. What are those three things? Two. Look after the animals and the people too. And to look after the land. Look after the land. And everybody, what do we become when we do those things? I always think of it as giving them the opportunity to learn about our culture and our language. The kindergarten educators are incredible and they really embrace the culture. They don't just do the language with me, it's spread across the whole day, across the whole week. It's intertwined in the children's day-to-day -day sessions, so it's really, really lovely and it's really important. We are well on the way to a reconciled Australia. Emily Bisland speaking with Indigenous language facilitator in Warrnambool, Mel Stephenson. And who wouldn't want to be in that class? I want to be taught by her. How absolutely fabulous. And those kids are just totally embracing everything that she's teaching them. That's Australia Wide for this week. Thanks to Maddie Snow for producing the programme this week. And um, have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.